Section 16 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 3, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 37, The Orsini Bombs Explode in Paris and London, Part 3. This idea received support from the arrest of Dr. Simon Bernard, a French refugee who was immediately put on trial as an accomplice in Orsini's plot. Bernard was a native of the south of France, a surgeon by profession, and had lived a long time in England. He must have been, in outward aspect at least, the very type of a French Red Republican conspirator, to judge by the description given of him in the papers of the day. He is described as thin and worn, with dark, restless eyes, sallow complexion, a thick moustache and a profusion of long black hair combed backwards and reaching nearly to his shoulders, and exposing a broad but low and receding forehead. The arrest of Bernard may have been a very proper thing, but it came in with the most untimely effect upon the government. It was understood to have been made by virtue of information sent over from Paris, and no one could have failed to observe that the loosest accusations of that kind were always coming from the French capital. Many persons were influenced in their belief of Bernard's innocence by the fact, which does assuredly count for something, that Orsini himself had almost with his dying breath declared that Bernard knew nothing of the intended assassination. Not a few made up their minds that he was innocent because the French government accused him of guilt, and still more declared that innocent or guilty he ought not to be arrested by English authorities at the bidding of a French emperor. At the same time, the Cantillon story was revived, the story of the legacy left by the first Napoleon to the man who attempted to assassinate the Duke of Wellington, and it was insisted that the legacy had been paid to Cantillon by the authority of Napoleon III. The debate was over and the conspiracy bill disposed of before the Bernard trial came to an end, but we may anticipate by a few days and finish the Bernard story. Bernard was tried at the Central Criminal Court under existing law. He was defended by Mr. Edwin James, a well-known criminal lawyer, and he was acquitted. The trial was a practical evidence of the inutility of such special legislation as that which Lord Palmerston attempted to introduce. A new law of conspiracy could not have furnished any new evidence against Bernard or persuaded a jury to convict him on such evidence as there was. In the prevailing temper of the public, the evidence should have been very clear indeed to induce an ordinary English jury to convict a man like Bernard and the evidence of his knowledge of an intended assassination was anything but clear. Mr. Edwin James improved the hour. He made the trial an occasion for a speech denunciatory of tyrants generally, and he appealed in impassioned language to the British jury to answer the French tyrant by their verdict, which they did accordingly. Mr. James became a sort of popular hero for the time in consequence of his oration. He had rhetorical talent enough to make him a sort of old Bailey Erskine, a buzz-fuzz barrier. He set up for a liberal politician and tribune of the people, and was enabled, after a while, to transfer his eloquence to the House of Commons. He vapored about as a friend of Italy and Garibaldi, 
and oppressed nationalities generally for a year or two got into money and other difficulties and had to extinguish his political career suddenly and ignominiously he was indeed heard of after he went to america and he came back again but we need not speak of him any more in the midst of the commotion caused by bernard's arrest and by the offer of two hundred pounds reward for the detection of an englishman named alsop also charged with complicity in the plot mr milner gibson quietly gave notice of an amendment to the second reading of the conspiracy bill the amendment proposed to declare that while the house heard with regret the allegation that the recent crime had been devised in england and was always ready to assist in remedying any proved defects in the criminal law yet it cannot but regret that her majesty's government previously to inviting the house to amend the law of conspiracy by the second reading of this bill at the present time have not felt it to be their duty to make some reply to the important dispatch received from the french government dated paris january twentieth eighteen fifty eight and which has been laid before parliament it might have been seen at once that this was a more serious business for the government than mr kinglake's amendment in forecasting the result of a motion in the house of commons much depends on the person who brings it forward has he a party behind him if so then the thing is important if not let his ability be what it will his motion is looked on as a mere expression of personal opinion interesting perhaps but without political consequence mr kinglake was emphatically a man without a party behind him mr gibson was emphatically a man of party and of practical politics mr kinglake was a brilliant literary man who had proved little better than a failure in the house mr gibson was a successful member of parliament and nothing else no one could have supposed that mr gibson was likely to get up a discussion for the mere sake of expressing his own opinion or making a display he was one of those who had been turned out of parliament when palmerston made his triumphant appeal to the country on the china question he was one of those whom punch made fun of by a new adaptation of the old il n'y a pas de quoi story one of those who could not sit because they had no seats now he had just been returned to parliament by another constituency and he was not likely to be the mouthpiece of a merely formal challenge to the policy of the government when the debate on the second reading came on it began soon to be seen that the condition of things was grave for lord palmerston every hour and every speech made it more ominous mr gladstone spoke eloquently against the government mr disraeli suddenly discovered that he was bound to vote against the second reading although he had voted for the first the government he argued had not yet answered the dispatch as they might have done in the interval and as they had not vindicated the honour of england the house of commons could not entrust them with the measure they demanded lord palmerston saw that in homely phrase the game was up he was greatly annoyed he lost his temper and did not even try to conceal the fact that he had lost it he attacked mr milner gibson fiercely declared that he appears for the first time in my memory as the champion of the dignity and honour of the country 
he wandered off into an attack on the whole peace party or manchester school and told some story about one of their newspapers which laid it down as a doctrine that it would not matter if a foreign army conquered and occupied england so long as they were allowed to work their mills all this was in curiously bad taste for a genial and kindly as well as a graceful man it was singular how completely lord palmerston always lost his good manners when he lost his temper under the influence of sudden anger luckily a rare influence with him he could be actually vulgar he was merely vulgar for example when on one occasion wishing to throw ridicule on the pacific principles of mr bright he alluded to him in the house of commons as the honourable and reverend gentleman lord palmerston in his reply to mr milner gibson showed a positive spitefulness of tone and temper very unusual in him and especially unbecoming to a losing man a statesman may rise as he will but he should fall with dignity when the division was taken it appeared that there were two hundred and fifteen votes for the second reading and two hundred and thirty votes against it the government therefore was left in a minority of nineteen one hundred and forty-six conservatives were in the majority and eighty-four liberals besides these there were such of the peelite party as sir james graham mr gladstone mr cardwell and mr sidney herbert lord palmerston at once made up his mind to resign his resignation was accepted not quite a year had passed since the general election sent lord palmerston into power triumphant over the routed liberals and the prostrate manchester school the leaders of the manchester school were actually driven from their seats there was not a cobden or a bright to face the conqueror in parliament not quite a year and now on the motion of one of the lieutenants of that same party returned to their position again lord palmerston is ejected from office palmerston once talked of having his tit-for-tat with john russell the peace party now had their tit-for-tat with him cassio hath beaten thee and thou by that small hurt hast cashiered cassio lord palmerston had the satisfaction before he left office of being able to announce the capture of canton the operations against china had been virtually suspended it will be remembered when the indian mutiny broke out to adopt the happy illustration of a clever writer england had dealt with china for the time as a backwoodsman sometimes does with a tree in the american forests girdle it with an axe so as to mark it out for felling at a more convenient opportunity she had now got the cooperation of france france had a complaint of long-standing against china on account of the murder of some missionaries for which redress had been asked in vain the emperor of the french was very glad to have an opportunity of joining his arms with those of england in any foreign enterprise it advertised the empire cheaply it showed to frenchmen how active the emperor was and how closely he had at heart the honour and the interests of france an expedition to china in association with england could not be much of a risk and would look well in the newspapers whereas if england were to be allowed to go alone she would seem to be making too much of a position for herself in the east there was therefore an allied attack made upon canton and of course the city was easily captured 
Commissioner Ye himself was taken prisoner, not until he had been sought for and hunted out in most ignominious fashion. He was found at last hidden away in some obscure part of a house. He was known by his enormous fatness. One of our officers caught hold of him. Ye tried still to get away. A British seaman seized Ye by his pigtail, twisted the tail several times round his hand, and the unfortunate Chinese dignitary was thus a helpless and ludicrous prisoner. He was not hurt in any serious way, but otherwise he was treated with about as much consideration as schoolboys show towards a captured cat. The whole story of his capture may be read in the journals of the day, in some of which it is treated as though it were an exploit worthy of heroes, and as if a Chinese with a pigtail was obviously a person on whom any of the courtesies of war would be thrown away. When it was convenient to let Lucier's pigtail, he was put on board an English man-o'-war, and afterwards sent to Calcutta, where he died early in the following year. Unless report greatly belied him, he had been exceptionally cruel, even for a Chinese official. It was said that he had ordered the beheading of about 100,000 rebels. There may be exaggeration in this number, but as Voltaire says in another case, even if we reduce the total to half, cela serait encore admirable. The English and French envoys, Lord Elgin and Baron Gros, succeeded in making a treaty with China. By the conditions of the treaty, England and France were to have ministers at the Chinese court, on certain occasions at least and China was to be represented in London and Paris. There was to be toleration of Christianity in China, and a certain freedom of access to Chinese rivers for English and French mercantile vessels, and to the interior of China for English and French subjects. China was to pay the expenses of the war. It was further agreed that the term barbarian was no longer to be applied to Europeans in China. There was great congratulation in England over this treaty, in the prospect it afforded of a lasting peace with China. The peace thus procured lasted, in fact, exactly a year. Lord Palmerston then was out of office. Having nothing in particular to do, he presently went over to Compiègne on a visit to the Emperor of the French. For the second time, his friendship with Louis Napoleon had cost him his place. End of section 16.